Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, your central hub for all things related to education. Join us every episode for the most up-to-date tips and strategies on how to maximize student potential. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Scalar Learning Podcast. I am your host, Huzaifa, as always. And today we are talking with somebody in the math world, which is my world. So I love this world and I'm very excited to have this guest. But he's not just somebody in the math world. He is a huge figure in the math world. He's got a massive YouTube channel with over 800,000 followers, uh, subscribers. And it's a it's just such a well-designed, beautifully put-together uh, math channel. And I think it's a great place for people who especially want to explore really complex concepts, but in a stimulating, interesting way. So the channel is called Three Blue, One Brown, and it's some combination of math and entertainment depending on your disposition. This is from his About section on his YouTube channel. The goal is for explanations to be driven by animations and for difficult problems to be made simple with changes in perspective. Uh, Like I said, I definitely encourage you guys to check it out. And so without further ado, Grant Sanderson, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule and joining. I really appreciate it. So let's first start with your background. What is what is your work background, education background, all that stuff? Yeah, um, well, I, I studied math at Stanford. Um, and then also, sometimes I'll phrase it that I was sort of seduced by computer science along the way, but the, the first love of math kind of won out. Um, so I was doing a decent bit of programming and, you know, like my summers would be spent at like software engineering internships, that kind of thing at that time. And, um, as far as in education itself that I didn't, I didn't necessarily see myself moving in that direction, except insofar as maybe I was going to go into math academia and that would be sort of a big component of it. Um, but I definitely loved just on the side doing teaching when it came up, whether that was in the form of like casual tutoring or if it was like the chance to sort of give a talk on an interesting topic here or there. Um, and so the channel itself was something that, uh, I don't know, in some ways I sort of stumbled into it. It started just because I wanted a coding project where I hadn't really done much with graphics before. And I thought it might be fun to have a little personal project of, uh, making my own math animation library, not because others didn't exist. I mean, there's lots of great ones out there, but sometimes just for the sake of going through the motions of like learning a thing, you kind of want to build your own. And my metric of like, is this project done? Have I done what I want to do with it? Was use it to make one video. And so clearly somewhere looking in the back of my mind is the thought that like making math videos would be a cool thing because otherwise I would have chosen a different notion of what it means to have finished this personal project. And also obviously the fact that I chose creating a, a math animation library indicates that there's some desire I had to like whip up animations. And when I was doing things, whether it was in the form of casual tutoring or like giving some small talk, like the ability to have the visual description of what's playing out in my head once I understand a topic conveyed to the audience, like that just seems very useful. Um, So so I did that, right? And I I made one video that was what turned out to be the first video on the channel. Not something I'm terribly proud of necessarily, but it got the project rolling. And uh, after doing it, I thought, okay, maybe I'll make a second video. Maybe I'll make a third. And it was around this time that a couple friends pointed me to 
the fact that Khan Academy was running something they were calling the talent search. Um, and, you know, I looked into it and it remained a little bit vague what the talent search was. I think there was some notion of it being a recruitment endeavor because they wanted to expand content creation beyond just Salcon making videos. Um, and this was also intertwined, like, uh, I remember reaching out to Henry Reich of Minute Physics very early on, who was very kind about being kind of encouraging and supportive and you know, kind of being, he seems to be very willing to be set like a, a mentor role if he, if he likes a, a new channel that he sees. Um, and he, at the same time, was making an introduction to me with some of his contacts at Khan Academy. Um, and when I like went over there to talk with him, they're like, yeah, yeah, you should like enter this talent search. We'll like go through it. And in one sense or another, I was like selected as one of their 10 winners. And they, they, uh, you know, there were various other people, some of them like teachers who made videos. Uh, one of them was like, you know, an actual YouTuber, uh, making educational videos. Uh, I think there was one, there was one high school student also who was really good. And it was just like this, this hodgepodge of random people making educational type videos. And in that batch, there were really only two of us who were in a position where we might have wanted to actually join Khan Academy in uh, like a more formal sense. You know, everyone else had some specific thing going on in their life that was less flexible. Um, and the two of us ended up uh, becoming content fellows, uh, which was basically, you know, they have this program of like stick around at Khan Academy for one year, uh, develop content in one particular course. So like I was doing it in multivariable calculus. Uh, the other person was doing it in grammar. And there were a bunch of other content fellows coming in, not through the talent search, but through other things, uh, coming like out of PhD programs. Um, so there was like the biology content fellow, the electrical engineering content fellow, things like this. So it's kind of a fun little cohort of people coming from different directions to make content there. Um, and so that, where, where does this land us? This was like end of 2015 through 2016. I'm... Uh, making content for Khan Academy. And and this this entails like two different types. Like I was writing a lot of articles, like not a lot of people sort of know that there's written material on the site. And then also making Khan style videos. Uh, but the channel, 3 Blue and Brown, which was where I had put those initial videos with the animation library, um, was something I was just doing on the side. So it was this, it was this funny situation where like uh, my day job was to you know make videos about math, about multivariable calculus, but by night, I would also make videos about math, uh, just of a different like flavor and form. Um, and, and so when you're making the videos or were, as your channel, as your content was growing, excuse me, in Khan Academy, was the channel growing very quickly? Do you think as a result of your presence on Khan Academy or were they completely separate or how did that all play out? Uh, so that is a, that is a very interesting question. Um, they were largely separate, I think. So, um, like, you know, it would never be the case that, like, in a Khan Academy video, I would, like, mention what channel I was from. Um, the, it, there is, like, a little corner of the Khan Academy site. Uh, what do they call it? It was, like, it was like math for fun and for glory, or maybe it was called recreational math. It was something like that, like a, a little corner of things that were not part of a curriculum, but just random videos. Like, this is where Vihart's videos would live, or there were some from, uh, like, the Art of Problem Solving founder that were, like, on there. Um, and... So when I joined, uh, you know, my videos did sort of become part of that. But in the same way that, like, there were lots of other 
uh, math channels videos there. So maybe that got them some exposure. Um, it cer certainly doesn't hurt, right? And it also certainly doesn't hurt if in the comments of Khan Academy videos, you have people saying like, hey, I recognize this voice. It's from Three Blue and Brown. And if people like search for that. Um, but at the same time, like the funny thing is, uh, like Khan Academy videos are not very widely viewed. It was, it was this funny situation because there were just so many of them. And the goal of it is to build a library that is a resource for people to come into, not to have a, a channel that is followed in the sense of someone who follows it wants to know all the new content being uploaded. Because, you know, you might have like 10 new videos uploaded in a bunch of different disciplines in a day. So uh, even though 3 Blue and Brown was smaller at the time, you know, it might be the case if I put up a video there that the first couple of days were like, I don't know, 10,000 views or something like that. Um, Khan Academy, it would be like a couple hundred. But that, that would grow much more like persistently and steadily over time because it is part of that library. Whereas, you know, traditional, if you like have a channel that is followed in the more literal sense of being followed, it'll be most of the views at the start and then like an exponential decay downward. So couldn't have hurt, but they were, they were largely separate. And there, there was definitely, I mean, there was, there was a lot of... Um, Multiple times when I would be talking with a coworker at Khan Academy, maybe it was like on the engineering side, and I would have been there for like nine months, let's say, and then they're like, wait a minute, like, are you the guy from Three Blue and Brown? Like, the, they did not, even though we worked together, they did not know that like those, that I was working at their company or that the person that they knew from that channel was working at their company. So there was, there was kind of a, a distinction in that way, but it couldn't have hurt. Absolutely. And I, I, I imagine that, um, there's a lot of little factors that just add together when it comes to like what makes a channel that is smaller start to gain momentum. And like, because of the, the compounding effects of some of these things, like even small little influences, like mentions of the channel's name in comments of a Khan Academy video can maybe have a, a very meaningful impact. Now let's talk, let's, I want to jump back to how you mentioned you love math and you're nearly wooed away by computer science, which is funny because that's the reverse story for me. I started out majoring in math in college and then I switched to computer science my junior year. I tried it out and I loved it. And so that was the direction that I went. But let's, let's go back to the love of math because this is something that I'm, I, 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 you married I, the mistress is what happened. I married the mistress. Yeah, exactly. I went for the mistress. And now I've come back to, to my good old loyal companion of math. So let's talk about loving math. And I think there's a, there's a big emphasis in education, throughout education, not just in math, but especially in math, to get kids to love math. How can we make it fun? And I think that I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I think that what you do really well and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think what you do well is it's not like you just try and make it fun. You recognize that it is intrinsically fun, but just the presentation sometimes can muddle up the the beauty of it. And I think what you do really well is trying to communicate the pure, the natural beauty of math in all these different cool ways. Talk a little bit about that. Tell me if I'm completely wrong about that. And but tell me how do you, you know is, is that your goal and how do you constantly push to connect those dots? Because I mean the fact that you have 800,000 plus subscribers tells me that man people really are interested in this stuff and they do find it fascinating and it can be really heady the stuff that you cover and people love it. So uh, I've given you a lot, but 
but take it take it from take it <laughs> well, from there. <laughs> I think you I think you phrased it absolutely beautiful there, which is like rather than trying to make it like fun, like let's have some fun with this kids. Like the math itself is quite pretty and th- throughout history, you know, you look at the way that people who have engaged with the subject talk about it and it's it's this almost religious fervor about the beauty of what they're engaging with. So there's something to be said for just show the thing itself like as as well as you can. And if you have accurately put that thing in the student's head, they'll get it. They'll get why it's interesting. And I mean, uh, everyone loves patterns from the point when, like, even before we learn how to talk, we love patterns, right? And this is the kind of thing that math is all about. Uh, that's sometimes obfuscated in uh, in trying in more procedural things, right? Where uh, often if, if people think like, what is math? If they think, oh, it's when you're learning how to you know, multiply three digit numbers by each other, or if you're like uh, learning your trig identities or whatever it might be, um, rather than understanding connections between patterns. Like I can, I can get why people would find it unfun because frankly, like a lot of, a lot of what does go under the title of math, I personally find like unfun, right? Um, like memorizing trig identities, horrible. I don't want to do that. Uh, or, um, like uh, factoring some large polynomial, unless there's some clever aspect to what goes into factoring it that will um, make me, you know, like stroke your ego a little bit and making you feel clever for even having found it. Like that's not fun. Um, But if if I try to introspect on why it is that I I came to like the subject, um, I mean, one, that's a very deep root, right? This goes back to when I was very little. I mean, I, I remember... My dad playing a very important role here in silly little ways. Like I remember one game that he would play, and gosh, I must have been, oh, let's say I was like four or five, uh, where he would stack sugar cubes in some geometric way, and then have me like uh, determine how many sugar cubes there were. And you know, if it's if it's a simple arrangement, you can just count through one, two, three, four. But if it's in a way where some of them are like hidden, like let's say you make a little three by three block, three by three by three cube out of the out of the sugar cubes you know you have that one that's hidden and you know it can may, maybe be straightforward for us to think of how you'd see that but you have to it's sort of it's forcing you to visualize that one that you can't even see somewhere in your head and have a a sense of what this like three by three by three cube is all about and then you can imagine making it a little bit more complicated from there and you know you're you're exposing yourself to the interesting numerical patterns associated with the interesting geometries that you see there and you know if i got the answer right he would like let me eat one of the sugar cubes. So you have this very Pavlovian positive association with, um, with, with patterns, right? And, and it, it wasn't just about like, ah, you get to eat sugar because you were correct and you weren't wrong. And like we have, uh, you, you will get a higher score or something like that. It was more just like, hey, this is the feeling that you should associate with connecting neat patterns. Um, and my dad himself, you know, he is not a mathematician. I, I, I don't think he actually uh, like went past calculus when he was learning in school, but he definitely definitely put a lot of care into making sure that his, his two sons learned the subject deeply, uh, or, or rather just like had, had a good relationship with it and were, and were um, rewarded for their curiosity, things like that. Um, and, you know, along the way there were, there were enough fortunate, like, uh, times when I would have a good teacher who was encouraging in a very similar way. And, you know, I have to, I have to also suspect that th- there's a lot of, uh, a lot of positive associations that come from like ego boosting, like when you are a kid and you're told that you're good at something like that makes you like the thing more. 
And likewise, if you're told that you're bad at it, and you don't have to be told that explicitly, like if it's the case that just in the, the demeanor with which the teacher talks to you or condescends to you, or if it's just the score that you see on your test, if the implicit message is that you're bad at it, like, of course, you're not going to like it. So, um, yeah, yeah. So the, I, that was a very meandering way of saying, one, what you pointed out, just show the math itself as authentically as you can. And don't don't try to make it fun outside of that, uh, combined with a very judgment free environment. Um, can be, it can be a powerful combination. Now, if you, let's talk about, let's talk about some of your videos that you've made, uh, that I've checked out or even beyond what I've checked out, even some that really stand out to you. Let's talk about why some of these, like you chose to make some of these concepts. So for example, I work with a lot of students in high school and something that they recently all covered right before spring break was, were logarithms. And you make a really interesting video about the connection, the explicit connection between logarithms, exponents, and roots. And I think it's called the triangle of power. Can you talk a little bit about that video and why you think a concept like that or a visual representation like that, which explains a concept that is covered routinely in, in algebra two or pre-calculus. Why is something like, why do you think something like that is important for students? <laughs> it's a funny video to bring up because I, uh, I'm not even sure I believe the message of that video. So this came up, this is something I actually did on the side while I was at Khan Academy because I remember it was a friend of mine, Cam, who showed me a certain math exchange um, post that like that invented that uh, as, a, as a bit of notation. So credit absolutely doesn't go to me. I, uh, I'm forgetting the name entirely. It's in the description of the video. The first name is Alex, I believe. Um, but like we saw this and I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. Like this sort of deserves to be spread a little bit more. Um, now, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the thing I don't believe about the message of the video and then the thing that I do like. So if we imagine redesigning like history and notation, like I do think that uh, having something that shows how exponentiation, taking roots and logarithms are all really three sides of the same coin, um, the same three-sided coin, I guess, uh, is important. And, and, and having, having a notation that reflects that symmetry um, can make the rules a little bit easier to, to learn, right? It's, it's not something that seems arbitrary. Um, so maybe the thing that the student would guess is true is the thing that's actually true, right? And that, that can be good insofar as you have less moments of feeling like you were wrong or like the subject is confusing. But the downside of that is it's much too focused on the notation. And like what you actually want is for someone to, if they will, like the core property of logarithms, let's say that if you take log of the product of two things, log of X times Y, that's the same as adding the logarithms of them, log of X plus log of Y, right? That's the heart of it. That's really what it's all about. Um, what you really want is for someone to look at all of the rules of logarithms and understand it as a consequence of that, not as like a thing that they would expect given the notation um, or given the like symmetry of the notation with exponentiation. I mean, that can be, that can be very useful in, insofar as all of the same mental gymnastics that you go through for understanding exponential rules, they're just the same thing, just uh, phrased in another way. But really, rather than like focusing on the notation or uh, what, what uh, visual happens to be presenting it, you know, I do think the more powerful video about logarithms for students or something like that would be showing how it's a deeply intuitive concept that um, we like actively think about without really knowing that we are. Like there's the domain of things that you know that you don't actually know that you know. 
um, like if you're thinking of the sizes of things in terms of the number of digits involved, right? We, we have some sense that like, what is the difference between a hundred thousand and a million or a million and 10 million, how these kind of feel like incremental steps in some settings, even though of course, if you were to subtract them, they're, they're very different numbers. Um, and just like thinking of a size of a number in terms of the number of its digits, you are thinking logarithmically and rules. Like if you multiply two things, you're adding their logarithms make a lot of sense. You're like, Oh yeah. Cause if I multiply a hundred by a thousand, one of them has two zeros behind it. One has three zeros behind it. And overall they have five zeros behind it. Like all of this, you're doing logarithms, even if you haven't heard it under that name. Um, so if I, like if I was actually a high school teacher and like about to get to logarithms, I, I think I might actually like for the first week or two use the triangle of power just as a way to communicate the idea um, of it being basically the same thing as exponentiation, but we're just looking uh, at one of the things as being a variable that was previously the constant. And then two weeks in say, yeah, but this notation that I've been showing you, which I find more intuitive by the quirks of history, this never came to be. And in fact, we write it like such and such with the word log and the, the relative positions of the variables still kind of stay the same. So I think you can maintain a lot of the intuition that comes from that notation in the more classical one where you write the word log with a little uh, subscript. Um, so I don't know. It's funny that you brought up that video. Also, also, it's funny that you brought that up just because I feel like often if I, where I think visuals play an important role in math is that they can communicate what's really going on with a higher throughput than words can. There's just more data entering your head through your eyes than there will be through like your ears or reading. Um, and it can be a chance where if you describe a thing to at the same time show the thing in and of itself. But notation is not really the thing in and of itself. It's, it's more, more an aspect of how we choose to describe it. So like nothing in that video is actually a, a visuals first conveyance of what logarithms are all about. And I can imagine doing a video like that, right? It Absolutely true. The reason why that video caught my mind or caught my attention is because I do so much SAT prep and so much high school math that I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting just as a unique way of, of representing it. But yeah, you have a lot of other uh, – uh, you, you know, you have a lot of other videos that do a much better job of hitting the actual – essence of a subject visually but yes go ahead you were, you were saying if you were to make your own logarithmic video really hitting on the visual aspect what would it be like yeah maybe i've sort of like bashed this over the head a bit much um it, this would actually depend on the level that you're talking about i do i do think there is some video to be made in like understanding all right this is not a good answer this is just something that happens to be top of mind right now um understanding prime decomposition by first like taking the logarithm of all of your natural numbers and then seeing like the powers of two just being these equal steps apart from each other. Well, this is not great podcast material. (laughs) 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 At a high level, I'll just say, I can imagine something being said there were like in circumstances where what is front and center is understanding exponential growth in some way or powers of a thing as being um, front and center. So like prime factorization powers are like front and center. Um, Just, transforming things and seeing what it looks like uh, before and after taking a logarithm where previously what were these growing steps that like quickly go off the screen and it's hard to even even hold the entire spectrum of what you want to show 
on the on the width of a computer screen. Instead, having it as these incremental steps, all of which are like equal citizens with each other. Um, like there's ah, that's a, that's a very vague uh, hazy statement, but but something there. If I was actually making a video about logarithms for introducing the topic to someone, um, I do think I would center on um, on thinking of the sizes of numbers in terms of the number of digits that go into it, uh, which is maybe that's still kind of notational in nature, but it's leveraging something that people are deeply familiar with because they've thought of it ever since they knew how to represent numbers. Um, and I might, I might even, instead of introducing it with the word log, call it the like digit counting operator. Um, and then just, you know, and, and you'd want to extend it where you're saying, you know, even though 100 and 999 have the same number of digits, really want we want a more smoothly changing things. We want something where like 100 has, uh, well, in this case, we're just counting like, you'd, you'd have to communicate that it's the things after that first term. Like 100 is of size two. And in that same way, there should be a sense in which 999 is almost of size three and like 380 something is like, size two and a half. You'd want to communicate how to smoothly interpolate there, which I think can be made kind of intuitive. You said the words, if I were a high school teacher, and then you talked about how you would perhaps introduce logarithms. But let's take it to a broader level. If you were looking at high school math curriculum in general, or maybe math curriculum from sixth grade all the way through 12th grade, just at a very high level, don't want to get too in the nitty gritty, but what are some things that you see as perhaps problematic or things that maybe dull the pleasure of learning math? And wh what would be some major revamps or revisions that you would, you would want to implement if you had your say or you had your own school? Um, let me actually start by answering the opposite of the question you just asked, because this was something on my mind recently. Of, like we all hamper on math education as being problematic and something that needs to be fixed. But there's a there's a sense in which I actually think we're we're doing a lot better with math than we are with some other subjects. Like I was, you know, how often if you are taking, let's say, like a history course in high school, the things that show up on the test are going to be like being able to identify, let's say, like who was president at a given time, or like knowing the names of certain things that have happened, and it might it might even be something like what were the you know what were the two most influential, I don't know, most uh, immediate causes of the Civil War, or, or some things like that, which uh, have much more to do with like a, a surface-level understanding of the, the words that come up in looking at a topic. And I was mapping this to what it might look like in math, where it would be something like if you were taking a calculus test, like an AP calculus test, and one of the questions is like, what are the two most important operations in calculus? And you're supposed to answer like the derivative and the integral independent of if you even know what those mean um, or if you've ever used them to solve a problem. And like the same sort of goes in science classes where I think the, the process of taking a biology class in high school feels extraordinarily different from doing biology, right? From having a hypothesis, thinking of the experiment that you would need. And I'm sure there are many high school like, classes that do this very well. And uh, I, I don't want to hamper on all of them. But just mapping to like my own experience or the experience that I've seen in like, some students that um, I will interact with, uh, by and large, it seems to be the case. It's much more uh, learning the ontology of like, all of the things that go on in, let's say, in a body or in a cell or in an ecology. Like knowing what is there rather than having a hypothesis, 
hypotheses and designing an experiment that's going to be able to differentiate whether a circumstance where that hypothesis is true from one where it's not. So there's this there's this divide. What does it feel like to actively do the subject versus what are the what does it feel like to take a test in that subject in high school? Math, I'm not going to say it's perfect, but by and large, it does center on problem solving, right? What you are tested on is not, well, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people will think like, oh, I was tested on things I just had to blindly memorize. But the, the things that students find hard about math or that they dislike about it sometimes um, are when it when it is problem solving, when it is you're, you're faced with a thing and you have not seen it before, you have never seen this particular problem before, but you have to find its solution. And uh, this can differ widely from one class to the next, how well it's done, but at least that's closer in the direction of what it feels like to do math. I think competition math does this very well. I don't like the premise of it being a competition and there being a notion of winners and losers, but I do think if you look at the questions themselves that come up on um, some of these, like, contests for high schoolers like these are just absolutely in the direction of what it feels like to authentically do math so so that, that that's that's me first answering the opposite of your question i'm just like we are doing something right here and it is i think precisely because we're doing it right that math sometimes feels separate from other things where like any sort of discipline if you're really going to engage with it is hard. Like, like actively doing history, I can only imagine it's just very hard. Uh, there's just like a, a million things you have to discern through. You have to, uh, pick out salient information from a whole cloud of, uh, like, uh, text and data thrown at you. It's like hard and like actively doing biology and designing these experiments is, is hard and actively doing math is hard. Uh, so then when students in school, at least stereotypically think of math as being harder than the other subjects, Maybe that's only insofar as the way that we teach math is a little bit closer to what it actually feels like to do it. All that said, I do also have qualms with like how, how things um, uh, are, are typically presented. So let me answer the question that you uh, you actually asked. Um, like, so at a high level, I would, on a structural level, actually, I, I would I would put combinatorics somewhere earlier on in people's education slash I don't even think it is in most like common core curricula of knowing how to count things. Sounds like kind of a dumb thing, but you know what I mean? Like, a, you know, combinations, permutations, um, the relationships between these things. Like I only ever learned it in high school because of, uh, looking at sources, not in school. Like I, I remember art of problem solving books as being kind of influential in this respect. That was where I first learned what combinatorics was and what number theory was. And uh, what followed there, it's not so much that combinatorics was directly applied in a lot of settings. It's that the patterns that you're exposed to in doing that also are patterns that uh, help to simplify problems in a lot of other disciplines. Like the, the way that you organize yourself in doing a calculus problem might actually have a very similar look and feel to how you have to organize things in counting a much more discrete setup. So that I, I would put a lot earlier. Um, I do think the focus should always be on, uh, on I, I'm obviously hampering this point, but problem solving, where uh, if, if you were to interview a student and ask them, what is math all about? The answer they should give should not be something that feels procedural. It should not be about um, like knowing 
such and such rules from their algebra two class, or it should not be about, uh, there's lots of anecdotes I can point to like mathematicians, um, in some setting, like being unexpectedly like inexperienced with arithmetic. Um, I, I honestly don't know what the grading scheme would end up having to look like. Cause I get that the things that are easier to measure are also the things that are less creative, right? You, you don't want to grade someone based on like, have you come up with a creative solution to a certain setup? Because like maybe one day you don't, maybe one day you do Like everything shouldn't rest on that. Um, the most, the most, like this is the trickiness with, with a lot of education, right? Is you can, you can easily point to something that feels wrong or something that would feel better, but to actually map that to a pragmatic implementation, like it doesn't acknowledge why the system is the way that it is now. It's not like people weren't thinking. Uh, it's, you know, you have a lot of people who care a lot about the education of their children who tried to construct something like the only, I feel like the only time that I've heard something that felt like a, a revolutionary shift in how we might structure schooling that was at the same time feasible, that felt like it, it could actually happen. It would be a lot, but it, it is not um, fundamentally impossible. Uh, is, is the Khan Academy central mission of making things mastery-based and self-paced, right? The idea that uh, rather than all of the students in a class going through topic A, then going through topic B, then going through topic C, all just pushed through at the same rate, whether you got a 70% on the test or a 50% or 100%, whatever, we're moving you right along. Instead saying, you only go to the next topic once you've mastered the first one. Um, and the only way for that to happen is if you are in a system where it's okay for different students to be going at different paces. So that's a monumental shift, right? That, that would be a, just, a, just a crazy, radical, different way of doing things from how we do now. But it doesn't feel infeasible. It doesn't feel like there's fundamentally any reason that couldn't have been how things existed all along. And the power of that would be that you, you don't have people self-identifying as bad at math because of like the bad scores they get. You run the risk of maybe having some who feel slow, right? That, hey, you know, this, this peer of mine like zoomed through topics A, B, C, D in the first three months and I'm still like, uh, you know, working my way through topic B. Uh, so I'm not, it's not the case that everyone's going to feel warm and fuzzy necessarily, but certainly if there's the appropriate messaging around it being perfectly okay to move at a slower pace and not just saying that, but, you know, really embodying that in the way that you interact with students, um, that, that would really shift how people think towards the subject. Cause you're never, you're never going to love something if, if you just have the sense of like only partially knowing it. And every time you get to something else, feeling those holes in your knowledge because they're holding you back from uh, from the topic at hand. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. The entire movement, I think, of well, you have Khan Academy, you have other online curriculum programs like Alex or even IXL, and they're all mastery based and what allows for this new system which i think is kind of taking hold of a lot of schools slowly but surely and a new and it's a bit of a paradigm shift but what allows for that i think in large part is the availability of all these video resources like yours like khan academy and like all these other folks who I've talked to on YouTube have amazing video resources. So that allows students to learn at their own pace, watch videos over and over if need be, pick and choose from different teachers. And I think that's what's making it possible.
possible. And I think it's absolutely the right direction. And that will, I think it's going to be a great change once everything is all fully set up or, you know, to a point where all schools and all students can really take that approach. Uh, By the way, first of all, um, Grant, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts. Super interesting. I love talking math as always, and especially talking to somebody like you who's done so much in the math world on YouTube. It's just been great. If people are listening and they want to check out your channel and check out your stuff, how do they do that? How do they reach out to you? Uh, well, so they want to check out the channel. So the, the name is not exactly conducive to being communicated verbally, right? It's three blue, one brown, uh, spelled with the numerals uh, and like all one word. Um, or uh, I, I don't know if you, uh, I guess I could say a specific video. No, just if, if you search that or 3B1B, I bet might, might pull things up. Um, if you ever want to get in contact with me, I mean, my, my info is on, on my website. Um, so uh, feel free to reach out if there's something that seems, uh, you know, relevant. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what I'd say. Excellent. And guys, we only talked about a handful of videos. There's some really cool videos that I've seen on Pi. I have checked out some of the multivariable uh, videos on from Khan Academy as well that Grant has created and narrated. But he just got really, really stunned. Oh, the, another really cool one that I didn't get to talk to you about, but it, I think it's called The Hardest Problem in the World where it's just – it's crazy. It's um, – I'll, I'll try and summarize it, but it's basically within a sphere you have a – an object that has four points that touch the sphere. And then the question is, uh, tell me if I'm butchering this. The question is, what is the probability that the center of the sphere will be contained within this random object with four points, with the, the four vertices touching the cylinder, uh, the, the sphere? And it, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult problem, but broken down very nicely. So stuff like that, you guys should definitely check it out. Like I said, it's got 800,000 plus subscribers. And if you did not get a chance, to, if, you, if that if the explanation of the name didn't make sense, of course, you can, re- <laughs> you can uh, rewind or you can go to the show notes. Uh, the show notes are at scalarlearning.com. Just go to the podcast section. And you can check it out there and go directly to his YouTube channel. And guys, if you're listening, make sure to also check out our YouTube channel at Scalar Learning. We've got Khan Academy SAT problems every week. We also just released a new music video not too long ago on Exponents. Got new content coming your way way on the regular so make sure to check that out grant once again thank you so much for coming on today really appreciate it and guys please check back every week for new podcast episodes that is it for today and i'll see you guys next time take it easy Skiller, learning. Give me that